What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the Trump administration's efforts to impose a work requirement on low-income people who rely on Medicaid for health insurance. Arkansas is the first state to implement one starting last June. Bryce Covert will report on how it's going there. Also, we have a report from Mississippi. The state has only one place you can get an abortion. It's in Jackson, and the state also has a wonderful organization based there called the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. Rebecca Grant will report on the remarkable woman who founded and leads that organization. But first, maybe you heard the news. 50 people in six states were accused by the Justice Department last week of taking part in a major college admissions scandal. They include Hollywood stars, business leaders, and elite college coaches. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She was also Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The L.A. Times, The Washington Post, and lots more. She's best known for her work on Haiti, including the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. Thirty-three parents were charged in the case, along with others who received money, How did this work? You're a rich person. You want to make sure your kids get into USC or Yale or Stanford or Georgetown. So so you pay for what exactly? Well, it depends what you need. That is to say what you believe your child is missing in his or her application. Say you got your original SATs back, not so hot. You need higher scores on the SAT. Your kid has some problems, maybe you think, with ADD or ADHD. So you get a doctor to sign a note saying your kid has this problem. And then you get a special test session because you have this problem. And then you get a single proctor special test session and you pay the proctor to give you a better score on your SAT. But you don't pay the proctor directly because that would be wrong. (laughs) That would be wrong. The proctor is in a league 
with a company that fixes all these things. And that is the company at the heart of the scandal. That company is called the Edge College and Career Network, also known as The Key, and run by a guy named William Singer, who is the founder of this college preparatory business. He used The Key and its arm, Key Worldwide Foundation, as a front to allow those parents to make contributions to that foundation, which apparently has 501c3 status. So that means it's deductible from federal taxes. And then the foundation paid bribes to those test proctors. So there's tax fraud, uh, a federal offense. And I particularly like the name The Edge and The Key because the implication fully and right out there is that what gives you the edge and what is the key to college admissions is money. And there is one other way to get into college, courtesy of the edge and the key. And that is, if your kid is an athlete, athletic coaches can can recommend admission. But what if your kid is not an athlete? They found coaches who were amenable to taking some money to say that these kids were really fabulous. I looked at their uh, resume and their, their athletic achievement is astounding in water polo crew tennis, uh, all the things provided by the elite private schools. But actually, it turned out many of those kids were not athletes at all, had never been on those teams, or there were no teams at all like that at the school they went to. How much did these services cost the parents? Some parents paid 250000 or even $275,000 to have their kids admitted. Uh, Lori Lachlan, um, the actress, paid 250000 per daughter. You can arrange to have an SAT test proctor bribed. You can arrange to have an athletic coach bribed. What about people like Jared Kushner? He got into Harvard back in 1998. How much did Jared Kushner's father give Harvard? $2.5 million. And uh, how do you know that's why he was admitted? Maybe he deserved admission to Harvard. There was a great report in ProPublica on this in which the reporter uh, went to the Frisch School in Paramus, New Jersey, which was Jared's school, and got a quote from a former official there who said there was no way anybody in the administrative office of the school thought that Jared would, on the merits, get into Harvard. His GPA did not warrant it. His SAT scores did not warrant it. We thought for sure there was no way this was going to happen. Then, lo and behold... Jared was accepted, still part of the quote from the former official. It was a little bit disappointing because there were at the time other kids we thought should really get in on the merits, and they did not. And of course, there's one other effective way parents can get their kids into Harvard or Yale or Princeton that's perfectly legal and that doesn't cost them money. Yes, legacy is an old, longstanding, corrupt method for getting your kids into these schools. Legacy admissions, it's a, it's a funny name, but what it really means is not that you've left a legacy to the school of money, but that you have gone to the school and the legacy you're giving them <laughs> is your children. We should do some disclosure here. I know you have three kids who went to college. Did you donate $2.5 million to Harvard or give them a library? No. First of all, I have three sons, and one went to Harvard, and I went to Harvard. Isn't he the brilliant mathematician who's continued to do fantastic things in that field? Yeah, and I trust and believe that's what got him in because really no library 
has my name on it on the campus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but legacy is dying out. It used to be that legacy kids were largely rich kids. But now, because of the creeping meritocracy, which is not fully installed, obviously, legacy kids aren't always from America's oldest and wealthiest families. So it's been easier for schools to drop this policy slowly. And there's one more thing about the, the what they call the side door of getting in via athletic excellence. What the defenders of this practice say is that it benefits poor black kids who are, you know, great at basketball or, or football. And therefore, we want to have athletic admissions separate from academic admissions. Right. You would think it would be urban black kids and like middle of the country white kids who play baseball really well who are getting in. But that's not really true. First of all, not many black kids row crew or play golf or sail. And they do get into the Ivy League for their own sports. But the Ivy League is not known for its college baseball or basketball team. So not the best athletes go there. We've been talking here about the parents. What about the kids in in these cases? Do you see them as as uh, victims of their parents' uh, ambitions and anxieties? Or, or, or are the kids, or at least some of the kids, complicit? Kids who share their parents' values, who think it's great to beat the system, which shows that you're, you're not a loser, like uh, all those stupid kids who've been studying. Yeah, I think a lot of the kids are complicit and share their parents' values. They're their parents' kids. Um, and so, like, the president right now, who, when asked about paying taxes and whether you should pay taxes, he said, you know, it's smart business not to pay taxes. Of course, we don't know whether he did it legally. But one of my favorite kids in this scandal is Olivia Jade Giannulli, who is the daughter of Laurie Lachlan and Massimo Giannulli. Uh, he's a fashion designer and she's the actress. Uh, she really fascinates me. She had a 1.2 million following on Instagram before the scandal, and now she has a 1.4 million following, <laughs> okay. even though she stopped posting. But judging by her Instagram feed, she is she does share poor values. Like she's a fashion child with nothing in her head. She is a uh, product placement person who works for Sephora or worked for Sephora before Sephora dumped her because of the scandal. Um, but she consistently shows those same bad materialistic values and I love this. In an interview on the Zach Zang show, whatever that is, my friends, you may tell me, okay. it was posted on March 8th. She said about her father, and this is a quote, he didn't come from a lot, so it's cool to see that he built it all himself. That's, to my mind, a very American thing to say. Uh, she goes on, he, like, built his whole entire brand, and he wasn't actually, like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, ever enrolled in college, but he, like, faked his way through it, and then he started his whole business with tuition money that his parents thought was going to college. That's like such a different time. I don't know if it was if I was supposed to say that, but it's okay. So you can see that it's, it's passed down through the generations, and she knows a lot about cheating. Some people say the children in these wealthy families are victims of this, not perpetrators. But come on, they had to be coached. They had to agree suddenly that they had ADD. They had to pretend that they were on the polo team, at least in front of any interviewer from the college. I mean, I think if you look broadly, the real victims are kids who should have gotten in, whose places these kids took. And that's really unfair. So 
what is to be done? There's a lot of suggestions out there. Senator Ron Wyden is proposing a bill to eliminate the tax deduction for contributions to colleges from uh, parents while their kids are applying. What do you think of that? Uh, It seems wrongheaded because then they'll just donate before their kids apply. Their kids are there for 17 years before they apply to college. So they can donate year one, assuming their child is going to make it all the way to college age. And then the college will remember. The college always remembers. If you give Princeton a library in the year 2000, your kid will go there three years later and your grandchild will go there 25 years later. Of course, there's a couple of other proposals about what is to be done. Uh, USC, where half of all the students who were <laughs> in families accused of these crimes were uh, our students, USC is not allowing them to enroll because they got in fraudulently. I wonder if you agree with that. I have to agree with that approach. I mean, I feel sorry for the kids who didn't actually actively participate with their parents in the scam, if there are any such. But really, USC has to do that or its name is is valueless. And what about uh, larger uh, solutions like reducing the importance of standardized tests on which it's possible to bribe the proctors or maybe eliminating them? What about eliminating legacy admissions? I think both of those things are good ideas. But, you know, legacy kids will still apply. And then if you admit them, have you admitted a legacy child? But yeah, eliminating them as a policy would be a good idea. And also, I think eliminating standardized tests is a great idea because I hate standardized testing. But um, the colleges have to have a way to judge people. I think it's a really bad way. I think they should have some method for online interviewing of every single person, you know, who has a decent uh, application. Last question. The big picture here, what is this scandal really about? Well, for me, what the scandal is really about is not the fact that admissions were bought and gained fraudulently. It's about the fact that the colleges and universities involved were not, as they usually are, the recipients of the funds used to buy the place in the entering class. The system itself is a fraud, you know, and colleges use admissions as a fundraising device. That should be criminal. These parents who are involved in the current scandal, although they're wealthy, are not of the class to buy a building or make a $2.5 million investment. The scandal is really, to me, about class. The way for these people to buy a spot for their kids is through fraud. Note, all of these people are up-and-coming people, not of the social status of the Adamses or the Peabody's or the Quincy families of the Boston Brahmins, many of whom get into Harvard still automatically as what we call colonial legacy. (laughs) The Janoulis and the Huffman-Macy kids are of a rising class of moneyed strivers. You'll note that most of these things happened at USC, in the land of Hollywood, where people are very, very strivy. In a sense, they're being penalized for their inability to donate much larger amounts to the universities themselves. They have to commit a crime to get their dumb kids in, Mm. you know? So... Poor kids have to be fabulous students or athletes and very ambitious and aggressive. Similarly, middle-income kids. Upper-middle-class Arivists, let's call them virtual Kardashians, Um, like the people involved in this scandal, they have to pay unless their kids happen to be brilliant. But they won't make the huge investment required by the colleges, so they commit fraud. And the rich give libraries or wings or art collections, etc. One added note. 
the Ivy League and other premier universities became actually meritocratic, America would change. These schools are a bulwark of the old elites. In fact, these scammers, if you look at it this way, were pushing against a wall of privilege, as well as taking the spots of deserving, honest students. Unfortunately, they're also criminals. Amy Willens, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. In 2017, the Trump administration announced that for the first time in history, states could impose a work requirement on low-income people who rely on Medicaid for health insurance. Arkansas was the first state to implement one starting last June, and now a number of other states, including Arizona, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, New Hampshire, and Wisconsin, are chomping at the bit to follow suit. Bryce Covert went to Arkansas to report on the impact of the work requirement there. She joins us now. Bryce, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Well, you open your report for the nation with a profile of a guy in Benton, Arkansas, named Stephen Mitchell. Tell us about him. Yeah, I met Stephen Mitchell uh, when I was sitting around in a food pantry early one very freakishly cold day in Arkansas. He walked into the pantry and was already visibly in pain. He was limping. He was having trouble breathing. Um, I let him get settled. And then as with other people I was approaching, I said, you know, have you been enrolled in the state's Medicare expansion? And have you heard about a work requirement? And he said, yeah, actually, I got a letter recently telling me that I, my Medicaid is being cut off. Um, Unlike many people I spoke to in Arkansas, He found out about the state's work requirement the same day that he found out he was losing coverage. In theory, recipients in the state have three months before they get cut off where they're supposed to be complying with the requirement by reporting work or that they're going to school or volunteering. But the state didn't spend any extra money on outreach. A lot of these folks are really hard to reach for a lot of different reasons. And so a lot of people were finding out in sort of these haphazard ways And he basically said to me, look, you know, I've always wanted to work. I've tried many times, but he has really serious health conditions, health conditions that he actually found out about when he got enrolled in Medicaid. He found out what they were officially. He has asthma, he has hernias, sort of other pains in his body that he needs medication to deal with. And he said, every time I try to work, I end up paying a price for it. I often end up in the hospital because of his asthma or the pain in his body. He sort of ends up worse off than he was before. But without his Medicaid, things are only going to get worse. He was worried. He had an appointment coming up with a surgeon, and he wasn't sure whether they were actually even going to let him keep that appointment or not. You know, he wasn't able to get the medications that help him feel better, which if he was at all able to work, he would need to be able to do so. And he said, you know, I'm not against working. I just think that Medicaid is an important, basically, work support. He didn't put it in those words, but he, he basically said, you know, those of us who have health issues, we need our health insurance to be at all ready to work. Um, and then... We, we parted ways. He had come to the food pantry looking for help 
uh, with his utility bills, found out they couldn't help him there, and then walked off on foot. Arkansas is a very rural place, so he had a long walk ahead of him to go somewhere else to try and get help with his utilities. And how many people are are in the same boat, recipients who have lost their Medicaid coverage because they failed to comply with the work requirement? It's only been, what, less than a year. What are the numbers involved here? So the last tally that we had, it's over 18,000 people in the state, 18,164 to be exact, who have lost their Medicaid coverage because they didn't comply with the work requirement, which is a staggering number. It's a really large number of people. And what we're seeing is the state reports these numbers every month, and every month there's a new cohort of people reported as losing their Medicaid coverage. What's a bit frustrating uh, about the situation, um, on top of everything that the recipients have faced trying to keep their coverage, is that this is supposed to be an experiment. Um, the way that states are allowed to do this under the Medicaid law in theory is that these are experiments to see if work requirements work, but Arkansas hasn't had anything in place to evaluate what's going on. So while we know that more than 18,000 people have lost their coverage, we don't know why. We don't know what's happening to them. We don't have a baseline to compare it to before the work requirement went into place. So these people are sort of losing their coverage and then disappearing, and there's very little out there to help them get back into the program. Now, the advocates of the work requirement argue that unemployment is really low in Arkansas, 3.7% in December uh, 2018, and and therefore people who can work should if the state is going to pay for their medical insurance. Uh, What do you say to that? Well, talking to the people that I did, and I talked to over a half dozen people um, who had been subject to the work requirement, it you start to see why it might be that people are losing their coverage in such large numbers and not just sort of complying. I mean, the first is just that there is really low awareness of this. So if the state is interested in, in theory, helping people or prodding people to work, they first need to know that this is happening, and then they need help figuring out what they need to do. And there just has really been none of that in the state. There's so much confusion, very little awareness. But even among those who were aware, a lot were like Stephen Mitchell, where they have some sort of health issue that makes it difficult to work. I talked to one man who has frequent seizures, for example. I talked to another person who has been in drug rehab a lot recently. That makes it very difficult to work, but they aren't technically disabled. To be designated disabled and get disability insurance benefits is a really long, difficult process. It takes years. Many people face being rejected. So they're in this sort of limbo where they have physical impediments to working. They need Medicaid to stay healthy. Some of them said, you know, I'm going to die if I don't have my health insurance. Um, But they also are not seen by the state officially as being disabled enough to be exempt from the program. So they don't know how they're supposed to fulfill this. And to be honest, there's not much of a great answer coming from the state. Um, Some people are sort of getting caught up by accident. I talked to one woman who's had a full-time job for a long time and had to go online and report her work hours anyway because the state didn't realize. I talked to another woman who whose son should have been exempt because he's in the children's version of Medicaid, and he got cut off. Even though it was an error, it took her months to get back on. There's no new resources to help people navigate the system, to help the 
the Department of Human Services staff help people navigate the system. So it's a bit of a mess. Um, and we also know that health insurance, and particularly Medicaid expansion, has supported people in working. People who have health coverage tend to be have better health outcomes, and they also tend to then be able to work if they're able. They're more they're, they go to work more frequently. They work longer hours because probably because they're healthier. Little historical background here. Isn't this work requirement for Medicaid recipients part of a long campaign to quote end welfare as we know it? Who was it who? promise to do that? People may remember that uh, those words frequently came out of the mouth of uh, President Bill Clinton when he was campaigning for president and then once he was president. In the 1990s, he championed the idea of welfare reform, ending welfare as we know it. And one of the things that was part of that package was adding a work requirement to the program that eventually came to be known as Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. It's the country's cash welfare program for very poor people. Um, he was behind a less draconian version of what ended up happening, but he definitely he signed into law the country's first work requirement in a public program. And it's been in place since the 1990s in TANF. And so anyone who wants to enroll in cash assistance who needs a little bit of extra money to get by has to also either be looking for a job or have a job in order to get it, or otherwise they are disqualified or kicked off. And since the 90s, what have been the other points of attack in this campaign to kick people off public assistance? Well, what we've seen since, and particularly I would say in recent years, it's it was a moniker sort of taken up and championed by Paul Ryan for a while that we should take the work requirement that is in TANF and we should apply it to lots of other programs that so-called able-bodied people who get public assistance should prove their worthiness of that assistance by going and getting work um, and being forced to work and report those hours. Um, and now the Trump administration has basically taken up that mantle. Paul Ryan's not in Congress anymore. But the Trump administration has released reports and executive orders trying to put these work requirements into a number of programs. It's not just Medicaid. It's also housing assistance. It's making them more draconian in food stamps. Um, they want to basically try and put a work requirement in any program that a low-income person might try to avail themselves of. And there are plenty of Republicans in Congress who have also been pushing this forward. So it's this decades-long crusade to add a work requirement, which advocates will say is not that poor people don't work. It's that either they have some impediment to work, again, these health issues or things, you know, taking care of a disabled family member, or their work is really chaotic. And sometimes in between jobs or when your job cuts your hours, you might need food stamps, you might need Medicaid to get by for a bit. And instead of helping people bridge those gaps, figuring out what it is they need that would assist them in getting to work, Republicans have been on this mission to put a work requirement in these programs, which really ends up stigmatizing them. What we've seen in TANF is that it's basically a barrier that so many people say is too high to clear, and they just don't even try to get the assistance at all, even if they're eligible for it. And people are really worried that if we put them in Medicaid, something similar will happen, where people will just say, you know what, this is more trouble than it's worth. I'm not even going to try. And then they go without health insurance, which could be a real crisis.
Now, the other side of this is Medicaid expansion, part of Obamacare. It's an option for states. The federal government pays for almost all of it, but all the Deep South states have refused Medicaid expansion with the exceptions of Louisiana and Arkansas. So I'm a little confused here. Arkansas has adopted Medicaid expansion, but they're also trying to kick people off of Medicaid. Let's talk about the expansion part of all of this. Arkansas was one of the states that decided to expand Medicaid back when states were trying to decide whether or not to do that back in 2014 to childless adults who weren't able to get it before. That's how, for example, Stephen Mitchell was able to get health insurance in the first place. It's been a real success. The state was seeing its uninsured rate drop. It also had experienced zero rural hospital closures, unlike every other neighbor around it that hadn't expanded Medicaid. It really transformed the way that residents use medical care so that they were getting preventative care so that their cover so that their needs were covered and it wasn't a huge burden on community clinics and hospitals um, and all the providers say this has been a real success story but it's also been politically fraught in the state I mean it is a deep red state and basically what the legislature has said to advocates is look if you want to keep your Medicaid expansion the work requirement is the price you have to pay and that threat is very real because in order to keep the expansion the legislature has to pass it again basically every year every year there's a fight over it it's not guaranteed to continue year to year so advocates are in this difficult position of saying you know do we fight this work requirement tooth and nail um, and then put the expansion at risk, which is really doing so much for so many people. And we basically don't know how it's all going to play out. Right now there's a lawsuit against the work requirement, and if it's struck down, it could unleash a lot of political chaos in Arkansas. We've been talking here about Arkansas, but there's the 14 other states that have requested the ability to impose their own work requirements on Medicaid. What's going to happen with them? Who decides what's going to happen? Well, the request has to go through the Trump administration's um, Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. Um, and if they get approval, then they have to put it into place. A lot of eyes right now are on the lawsuit against both Arkansas and uh, work requirement in Indiana that was uh, halted thanks to a judge's ruling that it couldn't go forward, so it hasn't been put into place yet. Um, if those are struck down, it could present some real problems for states that want to do a work requirement. And, you know, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't know exactly how that plays out, but I think it puts the whole thing into real doubt. If not, those states will potentially move forward. But I would just ask them to look at what's been going on in Arkansas. There is no good way to do this. Bryce Covert, you can read her at thenation.com. Bryce, thanks for a great report. Thanks so much for having me. Mississippi, it's well known, has only one place you can get an abortion. It's in Jackson. And the state also has a wonderful organization called the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. It was founded and is led by a remarkable woman. Her name is Lori Bertram Roberts. Rebecca Grant went to Jackson to find out firsthand what the work there is like. We reached Rebecca Grant today, not in Mississippi, but in a hotel lobby in Portland, Maine. 
Rebecca, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Lori Bertram Roberts started out pro-life. How did that happen and what changed her thinking? Yeah, so Lori was raised, um, when she was young, she was raised in Minnesota and then she and her mom moved to Wisconsin and then moved to Indiana when she was 14. And Lori had been pretty involved in in the church and and in the world of the church and and raised to, um, you know, believe to to oppose abortion and and to be pro-life. And then I think she just had a number of of experiences that that evolved her thinking. And so she told me a story about how after she had, uh, you know, she had a bunch of kids and she was having a hard time. She was a young single mom and, and was working multiple jobs and, um, you know, things were things were tough. And she found out she was pregnant and she went to a, a Planned Parenthood and she didn't end up getting the abortion because the the pregnancy wasn't viable, but the care that she received there was really compassionate and it it changed her her thinking. You know, she realized that the narrative that she had been taught about Planned Parenthood or about abortion clinics or, or sort of, you know, reproductive health care didn't align with the experience that she had. And so, she, you know, she, she told me that, that it wasn't like that day she, she changed her views going from, from pro-life to, to being a big supporter of abortion rights. But it, it started her down this, this journey to, to changing her, her beliefs on that front and really becoming an extremely dedicated activist and, and advocate for, for reproductive choice. Um, you know, I, I think Gloria is someone who is is kind of a natural leader and, and a dedicated activist. And so before long, she was, you know, the head of, of now Mississippi and, and did some really great organizing work around there. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think she just, I think the progressive community in, in Mississippi, you know, people tend to know each other. And so if you're really involved in campus activism, then you meet some people who are involved with, you know, national organizations that, that, work on reproductive rights and um, there's just sort of that, that natural progression or, or addition of, you know, I'm going to work with this group and I'm going to work with this organization that, that tends to happen, especially if you're someone like Lori who um, is very energetic and, and really cares deeply about these issues. And I was impressed that she also engaged with the clinic escort program, one of the more high profile and indeed dangerous parts of this movement. Yes, so she um, and and some other people that that were also activists with the help of the Feminist Majority Foundation, they set up a clinic escort program because the the Pink House, the only abortion clinic uh, in Jackson, they attract a fair amount of anti-abortion protesters like, like so many clinics all over the country. And so escorts play a really important role in, in helping patients get safely into the clinic from their car or, or whether they're, you know, walking in off the street um, and, and making sure that, that the patients know when they arrive, you know, who is here to support me and my choice, who is an ally, who is with the clinic and, and the people who are not. Because it's sometimes, especially if you're a little bit stressed out as a patient, it's not always clear, you know, all you used to see is a lot of people outside the clinic and, and you're not really sure what's going on. So yeah, escorts play an absolutely vital role. Um, but then in, in through her, the clinic escorting work and organizing that Lori had done, she realized that another one of the challenges is that so many patients have a hard time paying for their abortions. You know, um, abortion isn't cheap. It, it can cost a couple hundred dollars, you know, $500, 
$600. That doesn't include costs associated with transportation or hotel or childcare if you're coming from out of Jackson. Um, and so she started doing some some fundraising and, and support around helping people pay for their abortions and, and the practical costs associated with it. And, and, you know, that's the work that abortion funds are doing all across the country is, is helping people with those costs because so many, so few people really can just have $600 they can pay out of pocket. Um, and, and a lot of insurance doesn't cover abortion care. And so, yeah, so it was through the, the escort work that Lori realized that there was really a need for, for some funding and practical support. And so she started, you know, getting involved in, in that aspect of the work, which ultimately led her to create the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. And in the nation, you say there's a difference in the thinking of the Mississippi Reproduction Fund between abortion rights and what they call reproductive freedom. Tell us about their thinking on this. Yeah, of course. So um, I think for a long time, reproductive rights was sort of synonymous with with abortion rights. Um, and, and that was a big focus of many national, you know, mainstream feminist organizations like NOW or, or NARAL um, or, or Planned Parenthood. And, you know, starting in, in the 90s, there was a framework known as reproductive justice developed by um, women of color and an activist group called Sister Song, which was trying to broaden how we think about reproductive choice. It doesn't just mean um, the ability to access an abortion, you know, to, to choose not to parent, but it also means the ability to choose to be a parent and be supported in that decision to be able to have a, a pregnancy or a birth experience that is um, compassionate and, and, and to be able to parent your children in, in a safe environment. And so it was really trying to think more broadly about both the barriers that people face to, to choice in a meaningful sense of the word and also not just focus on abortion. And while that's definitely an absolutely important part of, of the discussion, it's not the only part. And so Lori, you know, I think as a mother of seven and as someone who, who has dealt with, with plenty of, of barriers and, and obstacles to raising her family and, and also, you know, decisions around pregnancy, it was always very important to her to be able to support people, whatever choice that they make and, and, you know, only providing funding to people who are seeking abortion seemed to leave out a lot of people that she was seeing in her community who, who were struggling and also needed help. And so she, you know, her vision is, is really wonderful and expansive. She has, uh, she wants to do a, a diaper bank. She wants to do, and, and has done, a community baby shower and a doula program and sex education classes and handing out emergency contraception and, um, you know, helping people access birth control, all those sorts of things. And I think it's interesting because abortion funds all over the country, you know, they get way more demands and they're able to fulfill, you know, so many people need help being able to pay for abortion care. And so when I was speaking with someone from the National Network of Abortion Funds, which is sort of the, um, the umbrella organization that all these grassroots groups can, can participate in, um, they were saying, you know, they think that more organizations might be interested in, in supporting other forms of, of reproductive choice, but just, you know, they're struggling to keep up with demand for abortion funding on its own. And so... You know, Lori, um, and, and there's the other organizations that are that are working 
is sort of a more expansive vision. You know, I mentioned in the story, all options in, in Indiana and, there's a, a group, uh, an organization called Choices in, in Memphis, which is going to provide abortion care, and they're also building a birth in the Whiffery Center. So it seems like, you know, more organizations we might start to see have a, kind of a similar approach to, to Lori and, and expanding beyond just supporting abortion. Rebecca Grant, you can read her article, Meet Mississippi's Fiercest Advocate for Reproductive Justice, at thenation.com. Rebecca, thanks for a great report, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Finally, on this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, Dave talks about the right-wing attacks against trans athletes, particularly trans women. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.